we are live on Facebook and Sermon Audio. Okay, if, if, if we're live, that's really fantastic. Yeah. And that means I can take my glasses off so that I can't see. That's my plan. It's working. I can't yeah, see. <laughs> I see better when I can't see. I've got three things to do. I've broken my glasses and I have a broken tooth and I've got to get all of that fixed in the next couple of weeks. I hope I can. The tooth is starting to say, uh, you have to fix me first. So that'll be fun. Okay, so you say I'm operating, huh? Yes, you are. Well, then then it's time to go, I guess. Oh, yes. Ah, well, here we are on October the 21st, 2021, lecture discussion number 152. Before I start getting into that, I, some of you people know me a little bit. And hardly anybody does, but uh, that, uh, that's just how it is. I spend a lot of time watching and reading uh, quantum physics materials, as you know. It's something that I've done for a long, long time, and I still do it. And I subscribe to these different uh, outlets, and one of them is Sabine Hassenfelder. And those of you who know who that is, she comes out of the brilliant uh, website. Uh, she asked this question recently, and, and she fascinates me because she's clearly different uh, in the sense that uh, she is uh, doesn't take herself too seriously, has a good sense of humor, and is matter of fact in her in her presentation. So I really appreciate it. And she asked this question recently: How, uh, Does Kirk die, Captain Kirk of Star Trek? Does Kirk die when he teleports himself, or when he is teleported? So in other words, uh, when when they scramble all of the information about Captain Kirk and they move it to another location, did he survive that, or did the machine, the teleportation is system, the teleporter is just simply a machine? Did that machine? Uh, destroy Kirk and then make a copy. And we've had this debate before and we've this discussion before. So I'm fascinated by finally here comes, this is a philosophical discussion. Uh, if God makes a copy of you, then is it really you? Of course it's not. The living being must be intact. And so uh, we know that the person or the mind is not in the particles of the body. If there's even particles, we have to have a discussion. Is there really even a physical reality? And so all of that... Uh, uh, went on in this discussion and I, I of course went immediately to the comments because I wanted to see if anybody could answer this question because they were so focused on the body of Kirk and they were so positive that Kirk was in the body I mean he is the body and of course we know the Bible says the opposite of that the body is not you the body is simply a device you are the mind, the soul, the spirit, the breath of God's, or God's breath, the spirit of life. That is your personhood. One guy said, hey, this is a situation of the soul. If you can't transfer the soul, then you can't transfer the person. All you can do is transfer the body, make a copy of the body without the soul. So uh, the, the Bible has had this solved for centuries. It's fascinating to see, for me to see uh, the physics community finally trying to decide it. So I just found it interesting that she didn't end up saying there is something wrong with physics because we cannot figure out whether Kirk is dead or alive. And I agree, there is something wrong with physics. You have denied the existence of the soul. If you do not transmit the soul, then you do not have the information. The information follows the non-physical, not the physical. And this, of course, is resurrection, right? He has to redo all of this. He has to resurrect the body and reestablish the soul inside the body. Anyway, I just found that interesting, so uh, I just wanted to bring up uh, Sabine Hassenfelder, just because I'm weird. Anyhow, where am I? Lecture uh, number 152? Oh, no, no. Yeah. 
152. Oh, 153. Yeah, you, you did 152 uh, two last Sunday. Oh my gosh. But you said 151, but I corrected you. Okay, so it's really 153. Yes. Oh, uh, see, this is why I can't be left alone. <laughs> 153. How about that? On the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13. Notice how I slowed down there today. 2 Kings 23. At the worst, we have reached this gleanings phase. I look at the clock here and find out what time I started. You're going to help me with this, right? Because we're running a little bit late? Yeah. Okay. At the worst, we have reached the gleanings phase of the immortality of animal section or series, whatever you want to call it, of the three kingdoms, which are, as you know, they're the animal king, I'm sorry, the angelic kingdom, the animal kingdom, and the human kingdom or the mankind kingdom. And you're going to find commentators who add in, actually separate out, would be a better way to put it, uh, that'd be more accurate, the invertebrates from the vertebrates. So they look at the animal kingdom and they say, no, 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 no. We have to, we have to delve into the animal kingdom and let's separate invertebrates from vertebrates. Uh, open circulatory systems versus the closed circulatory system for the exoskeleton as opposed to the endoskeleton or the notochord uh, or the vertebral column. So they want to separate all the animals out and make a whole bunch of different kingdoms. In other words, there's a debate as to how many kingdoms are there really. I say three, obviously, and they do not agree with me. Can you believe it? Yeah. Oh, quit being so easy to agree. <laughs> Uh, anyway, obviously, I omit the plant kingdom. Plants are not sentient. They're not able to perceive. They have no awareness of self. Plants have no feelings. Feelings mean emotion. They don't have any of that, uh, whereas animals do. And angels obviously do. So, But when you exclude plants, and I do, of course, that raises the question of also excluding invertebrates. Uh, ultimately, the debate will reach into the insects. And Dave and I have had the insect uh, debate many, many times. In other words, uh, we're on the same side, but it's it's a very, very difficult position to this, uh, and it can't be taken lightly. But the central concerns of insects is, uh, of course, the first thing you do when you reach into the insect debate is why are there insects? And then you've got all the other questions: when were there insects? Did the insects happen in the first six days? If not, why not? When did they happen? Obviously, how are those insects? That's not up for debate. It's not considered by theologians. It's assumed. Oops, I've got to move my paper here, don't I? Have to switch sides. I should uh, hurriedly point out that the sucking lice, Saifu cunlata, uh, being a school teacher, we used to have to deal with sucking lice. Whenever we had a child with sucking lice, of course, what did we do? Yes, that's right. Run from him mm-hmm. and lock all the doors and exclude him like a leper. That's what we did. But the, the Siphonculata, or the order and Anoplura, they're to be differentiated from the chewing, biting lice, which we're familiar with here in Anchorage, um, because... Uh, when you when you have the, the fact that there's two kinds of lice, then you got to ask the question about the third plague, Exodus 8:16 through 19, right? What kind of lice were they? Were they the the sucking lice or were they the chewing, biting lice? We need to know. You may not think so, but it's a very good good question, because you see the magicians of the Pharaoh 
knew that that lice that, that God made from the dust, because he makes it from the dust, right? Again, we know who made the insects, don't we? We get that picture again, Exodus, the third, uh, the third plague. We know, and the magicians knew, that lice from dust, lice from dust can only come from the finger of God, and they say so. And as you know, Exodus 8, 16, 19 is deeply bound to John 8. They are this way. Once again, the finger of God is in the dust. He does it again in John 8. He does it at Exodus 8, 16 through 19, third plague, and he does it again in John 8. It's very important to know that. He's the light of life, John 8, 12, puts his finger in the dust. And so when you see that, you're, you're back to where? Yes, that's right, Genesis 2, 7. Genesis 3.19. So the question has always been, what did the finger of God write? What did Christ write at John 8.6? He's writing something in the dust. And I've had this discussion, as you know, you've probably heard me do it. Did he write the names of the Pharisees? Did he name everybody, much like a reproduction of what Adam did? Would he have done that? Did he, did he name the Pharisees who were intent on the murder of the temple prostitute because they had brought her out there to execute her and to make him participate in the execution? That's exactly what their little test was. They would, they would attack him irrespective of which position he did. If he joined in the execution, they would attack him. Obviously, if he forbid the execution, they would attack him. Of course, he is God himself and, and he cannot be trapped by little tiny people who are essentially the size of biting chewing lice or chewing biting lice uh, in perspective did he reproduce the writings on the stone tablets Exodus 20, Exodus 34 and note that the thick pillar of cloud Exodus 19, 19 Exodus 34, 5 is present at Acts 1, 9 what am I doing here? It's also present present at uh, Revelation eleven twelve, Ezekiel one four, Second Kings two one. Why am I bringing up the pillar of cloud? What does this got to do? the The presence of the pillar of cloud to just the pillar of cloud to just take a little diversion here. That's crucial information. Something amazing is happening happening when that cloud is there. Did the finger of God Almighty, Lord God Almighty himself, at John 8, 6, bring forth lice from the dust? Let me repeat that. Was Exodus 8, 16, 19 replicated? Did he do the same thing? What was he writing? What was happening? And essentially, I'm asking this. Just how comprehensive, how complex is John 8, 6 through 7? Is it just he wrote a few things? Or what else did he do? While he's doing that. And when his finger's in the dust, that's lice. Did he make lice? Did he write the stone tablets? What else came out? Again, Daniel 5, 23, 29. What's that? The hand of God what? Writes things. All of those have to be considered. The Gospel of John relentlessly documents every great proof that Jesus is the great I am that I am of Exodus three fourteen. He is the voice of of the burning bush. He is the one that says, that is my name. I am that I am. And so that's what John, the Apostle John is doing. And Apostle John and the Holy Spirit, they record this this thing at John 8. The adulterous woman that's being executed. The finger of God. The dust. The light of life. He asks, God does. Has no one condemned you 
to this surrounded woman who was waiting to be executed, impending, and knew she was going to die. There was no way out of it. And yet she didn't die. It is impossible for her to survive that, and yet she survived. Uh, Zechariah 14, 1 through 2 really helps here what's going on. I have a woman totally surrounded. She's going to die. That's Zechariah 14, 1, 2. It says this, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. I have a surrounded woman. Now remember, ecclesiastically, uh, women are either ecclesiastical entities. They represent churches, or they represent religions, or they represent nations. And so I have a woman surrounded by her enemies who are intending to kill her. That's Zechariah uh, 14, 1-2. Zechariah describes the surrounding in the fall of Jerusalem during the tribulation. The Antichrist amasses a great army. But the feeble among in the city, the feeble, the old men, that's me, the old fight like David. It's one of the most fantastic things that is said in Zechariah. They have the strength of David, Zechariah 12.8. Nonetheless, what happens to Jerusalem in the tribulation? Who wins that battle? The, anti- the battle of the city of Jerusalem. Who wins it? The Antichrist does. He, Jerusalem is overcome and defeated. Israel is saved, but Jerusalem falls. And God promises to seek out and destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. Zechariah 12.9 Something Christ effects at the battle of Basra. As Christ ultimately comes at the end of the battle of uh, Armageddon. Because the battle of Armageddon is extraordinarily complex. And Christ chases this army. This, and he makes it flee. This, ar- this fleeing army of the Antichrist is chased to the valley of Jehoshaphat, Joel 3, 12 and 13. And the nations that attempted to extinguish the Jews are themselves slaughtered there. And that's Revelation 14, 19 through 20. The battle, again, the final battle of Armageddon that we all talk about, we all think about, we all seem to know something about it, it's a protracted war. It takes a long time. Not a long time, but a significant amount of time. Uh, As you know, um, I have a great deal of respect for uh, Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum. And I think he's got this absolutely perfectly right. He, he divides it into eight stages. So the Battle of Armageddon takes eight stages. There's eight different partitions of it. And it, it goes over a 200-mile area. I think that assessment, I believe, is the most accurate one. I think his scholarship is right on the money there. Anyway, I've gone off the rails, it seems like to you, chasing rabbits, as is my habit, right? A lot of poetry. Okay, not. It seems like I've, I've left the subject. I haven't. I brought all of that stuff up because it's all the same subject. The point I was attempting to compose, yay point, was that John 8 reaches long into the Old Testament. All the way to Genesis 1-3. That finger of God goes all the way back. That I am the light of life goes all the way back to Genesis 1-3. That's the light of life. Who is Christ? Christ says, I am that light. Genesis 1-3. I've said that many, many times. He's the one that strikes the earth. He separates the darkness from the light. You all know that. 
But you also should know that there exists an opinion which says that John chapter 8 doesn't exist. At least John 7.53 through 8.11. And that uh, it disavows it. We have many, many supposed scholars that insist that John 7.53 through 8.11 is not original material. That it was added after the fact. Uh, not authored by John. Uh, and therefore it should be deleted. And a lot of your Bibles will actually have that annotation next to it. That is the adulterous woman. That's the finger in the dust. That is, uh, who has, uh, who are your uh, executioners? Where have they gone? Have, who has condemned you? All of that is John 8, uh, 1 through 12, or uh, 753 through 811. It's my opinion, obviously, <coughs> humble as it may be, that the removal uh, of John 753 through 11 Again, essentially, the adulterous woman and the finger of God in the dust. Um, I think that without 753 through 811, you don't have John 8 at all. You can't take it out because you take out all of John 8. That's my opinion. And, and you, you have this astonishing statement of 812. I can't say 812 enough. Christ announces himself as the light that makes life. He is the force that causes life. And think about that in our modern uh, academic uh, structure that we have. The universities and the elementary schools now, the high schools, the intermediate schools, all of them say the same thing, that life comes from some kind of primordial accident. And Christ says the opposite. So I have those two views. I am the light of life. The light that brings forth all life, including lice. And um, and uh, again, you, you, so you get rid of that. And you get rid of the subsequent argument Christ has with the Pharisees. It culminates. See, he's arguing with them all the way through the book of John. And it culminates in 8.58. And where he says, before Abraham was... I am. There's 314 Exodus again. Before Abraham was, I am. Abraham was, but I, there is no was with Christ. He's I am. He's always. He's the being. As we've discussed about many times, the Greek for that is that he's the being of which all being comes from. All of that. Uh, so when you look at that culmination, the Pharisees respond to that culmination, that statement of him where he, he claims to be the I am of, he doesn't claim, he announces that he's the I am that I am of Exodus 3.14. What did the Pharisees do there? How do they respond to that? Guess what they want to do? They want to stone him. Well, that goes back to the woman who's being stoned, right? Mm-hmm. You take the woman being stoned out of the picture, what, what's going on? I have I have bookends of stoning, don't I? Starts with stoning, ends with stoning. Before Abraham was, I am. And the Pharisees respond by attempting to stone God. And how does Christ deal with that? How does he do? What does he do? He evades them. It says he hides himself. He evades them by walking through them. He walks through them. As if they're not there. And all of that 
his I am, the Pharisees attempting to stone God, and Christ's evasion of them, all of that is predicated predicated on the stoning of the adulterous woman in the temple, the temple prostitute, and the finger of God in the dust. It starts with stoning and ends with stoning. And if you don't have it starting with stoning, you're starting to tear. Uh, you're destroying the book of uh, the 8th chapter of John, which is, is so incredibly significant. You must believe I am or you will perish in your sin. That's what he says, 8.24, sorry. 8.58 is God himself, Jesus Christ, exposing that he is outside of time. We've had that discussion so much. I am means, I, means he is never inside of time. He's always outside of time. Now, we may see him as inside of time, but he walked through the Pharisees and probably all the people that were in the temple. He walked through them. All these, all these folks that are so excited that Christ uh, walked into a building that had the doors closed. I just go like this. I go, my gosh. He walks through people. They think they assigned to his resurrected body this extra power. Well, take a look at John 8, 58, 59. God himself exposing that he is outside of time. That's what, he's di- what he did there. 859 unmasks that he is in authority over all physical matter. So, so that means he's, he's in authority over energy, space, matter, and time. And that's exactly what he says at 812. And he demonstrates at 86. Keep in mind there's a crowd of people, John 8-2, in the temple house of God. There's no house of God except the temple. The temple is the house of God. All you poor churches that call yourself the house of God, John 8. The one and only house of God, that's where they are. And they saw, all these people saw and heard all that was said between Christ and these idiot Pharisees. Can I say idiot Pharisees? I can. Who thought it wise to argue with God himself. They, they know there's something special about Jesus Christ, but they don't admit that it is God himself. And they sought to murder God with rocks, once again demonstrating the height of their blind stupidity. Anyway, to sum this up, John 7:53 through 8:12 is astonishing, as is all of Scripture. It's synthetic. It's independent, interdependent with Genesis 1:3, 2:7, Exodus 8, Exodus 19, Psalm 22:16, Ezekiel 16, Daniel 5, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14:1 through 2, Jeremiah 49:20 20 through 22, 2:03, Micah 4, Micah 5. That's what it's connected to, and I just I didn't name everything. I didn't even come close. How do you throw that out of the Bible? How do you do it? You're going to take it out surgically? Is that your plan? Well, you cut out all those verses that I just said with it. And it's absolutely connected to John 8, 12 through 59. Again, starts with stoning, ends with stoning, finger of dust, all of the things. It all fits with what he says and what he does at 8, 58, 59. Okay, got that out of the way. So far, what have we talked about? Sabine Hassenfelder. And then all of this other goulash, and you're going, what's he doing? What's wrong with him? <laughs> and some of you might be wondering how this mishmash comes together. And sometimes the discursive system that I have uh, remains discursive. I hope that's not today. Sometimes the assortment that I throw out there is just 
miscellany, and uh, we'll have to see if I can tie it all together in a nice little box. Can he do it? It's magic, isn't it magic? So far you're going, blah, 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 blah. What is this? <laughs> Listen, I, I, I know because I write this stuff. So I go, what are you doing? Every Sunday is the Cliffside Magic Show. <laughs> well, we hope so. In any event, I noticed on Facebook that Debbie M. Did you see her question? Yes. Yes, good. I noticed that Debbie M. Hi, Debbie. Um, wanted to add Isaiah 35.9. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that is delightful. Isaiah 35.9 absolutely needs explanation. Because we're in the animal king, angelic kingdom, the animal kingdom. I'm in the immortality of animals, and she wants to know what's going on at 35.9. Oh, my, oh, I don't even know how to answer. I, you can tell I can't help but start to, to smile, because I know what's coming. <laughs> and, it, and again, it absolutely needs explanation, along with... Psalm 22.16, Revelation 22.14, Revelation 21.27, Revelation 9.21, Luke 16.21, Matthew 7.6, Matthew 15.26.27, Mark 7.27-28, Isaiah 13.20-22, Jeremiah 50.39-40, and Revelation 18.1-2, just to start, Isaiah 35.9. What we got to do. And if you're getting a feeling that Isaiah 35.9 might be a dollop of complication, then I have successfully articulated the situation. And so as soon as I saw it, I just went, oh my gosh, Debbie, you don't even have any idea how bad this is going to be. And I can't wait. Debbie has, though, properly brought Isaiah 35.9 to the discussion because of the animal kingdom and the immortality of animals. She said, Wait a minute, what do we do here at 35.9? It's the appropriate verse uh, to begin the investigation, although Isaiah 34, 8-15 is also a candidate here. We, both of them have to really come through. So we're going to go to Isaiah 35.9. I should mark these ahead of time huh, so I can find them faster. And my Bible is just such a mess now. The whole thing is falling apart. Okay. Here's what it says. 35.9. I'll start at 8. A highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool shall not go astray, and no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. Okay? Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 34 are within the context of Daniel 12.12. 12. What's Daniel 12.12? 12? So let's put uh, Isaiah 35.9, and of course we're going to have Isaiah 34 involved in this, and Daniel 12, 12. What is Daniel 12, 12? That's the 1335th day, the blessing of the 1335th day, or the 75-day interval. And I'll race all of this at some point here in a minute, but I'll get you started. 
So what we are talking about here in Isaiah 35.9 and Isaiah 34, that is the millennial kingdom. So we're, we're talking about the messianic kingdom here. Isaiah 34 delineates the judgment of the anti-Israel Gentile nations. In other words, Isaiah 34 talks about what Christ will do to the anti-Israel Gentile nations, which now you understand how this connects to the Antichrist and the Battle of Armageddon. Because this judgment comes into the, uh, into the interval of the 75 days. And after that, after the judgment, uh, and of course you recognize that those that join the confederacy of the Antichrist army, those are the goats of Matthew 25, 31 through 46, the, the separation of the sheep and the goats. Those are the goat nations. And, God, and Christ is going to judge, judge those, and, and he's going to judge those in the 75-day interval. And if you make it to the 1335th day, then that, you have that blessing and you enter into the millennial kingdom or the messianic kingdom, Gentile uh, as you may be. So, after the judgment by Christ from his throne in the earthly temple, then comes the blessing in 1335 days. So let me just write that out. I've got, I've got 6,000 years. That's, this is what the Bible says. And then I have a tribulational period. Now, I would say that that tribulational period is probably within the 6,000 years. And then I have a 75-day interval. And then I have a thousand years. So I have six days and I have seven days as God counts. A day is a thousand years. The seventh day. So I have seven days total. Now a lot of people mock Christians for this, but this is exactly what the Bible said. In the interim, interim, the judgment of the sheep and the goats and the Gentile nations occurs here in the 75-day interval. So got all of that? All I'm saying is, is that Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 35 chronologically is contextually assigned, accredited, if you want to think of it that way, uh, to this glory that will be given to Israel, to Zion, uh, at the end of the 75 days. That's the millennial kingdom. They are now glorified in the sense that they are now, that, that the Messiah has come and he's establishing this fantastic glory for given to Zion that's described in 35.1 through 10 of Isaiah. Bottom line, Debbie's question, what's the meaning of Isaiah 35.9? Why won't there be any lions in there and why won't there be any ravenous beasts? Because that's the millennial reign. And she wants to know, this, this looks like there's not going to be any lions there. And there's not going to be any carnivores there. That's what it says. And Isaiah 35.9 is obviously, I believe obviously, is uh, describing the condition, condition of predation. What I mean by that, specifically animal kingdom predation. No animal will kill and eat another animal. Isaiah 11, 6 through 9 says that. And famously, as you know, there's a two, uh, Isaiah 11, 6 through 9 is, is coupled with Isaiah 65, 25. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The, the lion shall eat straw like the ox and the dust shall be the serpent's food. That is a description of the millennial kingdom. Keep in mind the future has two kingdoms to come. 
our future. There's two kingdoms coming. It's not dissimilar from the two advents of the two comings of Christ. The kingdoms and, and the two kingdoms coming and two two comings of the Messiah. And that's not an accident. Uh, and and in both of those, the, the two comings of Christ, especially in Isaiah, um, are they're blended together. It's difficult for people that don't understand that there are two separate kingdoms and the two separate comings of Christ. One is his coming. The other is his return. And of his return, I have his return for the bride and the return for Israel. So there's all kinds of ways to, to uh, get confused here. And again, there's a compression of sorts with regard to the two kingdoms and the two uh, uh, advents. In other words, there is a temporal kingdom of a thousand years. And then there's an eternal kingdom. The new Jerusalem that never ends is the eternal kingdom. It never ends. That's the eighth day. This is the millennial reign. Here, I go into infinity. That's the eighth day. I have a kingdom here and I have a kingdom here. And if you don't understand that one's the new Jerusalem and it is eternal and the other is the millennial reign of the Messiah with the nation of Israel for a thousand years. Ask why a thousand years? Why is he even having a, a, a kingdom for Israel? It's a, one of the great promises of Scripture. Why is he doing it? So, Revelation 20 through 22 provides clarity in that Revelation uh, chapter 20, 21, and 22 outline the differences between the millennial kingdom and the new Jerusalem from above, or the eternal infinite kingdom. We want to think of it that way, the seventh day and the eighth day. Revelation 20, 21, and 22 tells you the difference between the seventh day and the eighth day. Again, to repeat, the two kingdoms are often intermixed. Zechariah 4, 4 does this. As uh, the Messianic kingdom presents a picture, it's a portrayal, it's a type, if you want to think of it that way, of the new Jerusalem kingdom from above. That's again Galatians 4.26 and Revelation 21.2. All that to say is Isaiah 65, 17-25 proclaims the millennial 1,000 years of the Messianic kingdom. Isaiah 2, 2-4 begins the description of the temporal age. Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, Isaiah 65, 17 through 25, build on Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. That's how it works. That might not make sense. You have to look it up later. To highlight the essence of all of this, the conditions of the Messianic kingdom, uh, we, can, we need to make a list. List makers are going to list, right? So let's just kind of go through it here. Let me erase this, and I'll make a really fast list because I don't want to run out of time. The first thing we're going to learn about in the temporal messianic millennial kingdom is the mountain. There's a mountain. Jehovah, God's house, shall be on the highest mountain you can imagine. And, and that putting his temple on the highest mountain on earth, <coughs> that's a veiled response to the five I wills of Satan at Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. 
where Satan says, I will put myself on the highest mountain. I'll be like the most high God. Well, God actually responds to that. If you want to call it response, now I can't because he's outside of time. He puts his temple, his house, God's house on this incredible mountain. Isaiah 40 or 54, 10 and Isaiah 44, the mountains are going to go away. The hills are going to go away in the millennium. There will be no mountains and no hills. Revelation 16, 20, every island fled away. No mountain could be seen. There's no mountains except one mountain. No hills. He turns everything into a plain. Fantastically interesting. Why is he doing that? There are no mountains that can be seen except the mountain of God upon which is the millennial, millennial temple. The exalted earthly throne room of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. That's the only mountain. That's what he's going to do. So we start out with a mountain. Did I spell mountain right? hope I did. I did. And all the nations are going to come to this high mountain. It's a pilgrimage. You have to come. Micah 4, 1 through 2, Ezekiel 17, 22 through 24, Ezekiel 40, 1 through 4, Ezekiel 45, 1 through 8. Obviously, God has a plan here and a place to set his temple in his house. This is where he's going to put his temple on top of this mountain. So what's the obvious question? Where's the mountain? It's obviously in Israel. Where in Israel? And of the obvious, of the most obvious questions, why is he putting it where he puts it? Why does he get rid of all the mountains in the island and then he only has one mountain? What's he doing? What happened on the place where he put this mountain? Where is this mountain exactly in Israel and what else happened there? Anyway, there's a great mountain on earth during the millennium and judgment comes to the nations. So I could put, I, I gotta hurry. So I got judgment coming next for the nations. I have the sheep and goats. I have weapons or, 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 Turn to plowshares and pruning hooks, right? All of those things that you have read about. Judgment comes to the nation, goats and sheep, weapons be destroyed, repurposed, swords into plows, spears into pruning hooks, no war. There's not going to be any war. It's rid of war. No more war. Universal peace. Worldwide peace. And animals. No predation. No killing and eating. Animals will be at peace. Wolf and lamb, leopard and newborn goats, the young lion and the calves shall all lie down side by side. A child, an infant, will come into their midst, says. Ooh. Let's write that word down. Mist. A, a, a child will come into their midst and play with the snakes and nothing shall be hurt. The earth will know Jesus Christ and all animals will be restored to their Edenic state. And that is one of the answers to Debbie's question. Uh, 35.9 is talking about the animals that are now in the millennial kingdom. That is why there's no lion now that will be there as we think of lions. The lion that's going to be there will eat straw. Uh, there will be no ravenous beasts because they will not eat each other ever again. Notice the process, the conditions that animals experience. They have an endemic state, then they have the fallen state, right? What comes after the fallen state? 
So I got one and I got two. They're in a fallen state right now. Then comes what? Then comes this millennial state that I just described. So they go from Edenic state to fallen state to millennial state and then after that, glorified state. And what 35.9 is talking about is the millennial state. And it's in the millennial context. Glorified state, as you know, is 1 Corinthians 15.43, raised in glory. The point being, they appoint Ecclesiastes 3.18.20, mankind and animals follow the same four states. We were in an endemic state, Adam and the woman. We went to a fallen state. We'll go to a millennial state, those who enter the millennium. And then we'll all have a glorified state, those who are glorified. Of course, some will not be glorified. Again, 35.9, if you want to think of it this way, mankind and animals follow the same trajectory, same route, same orbit. That's uh, 3.18.20 of Ecclesiastes, as you might remember. So again, <clears throat> Isaiah 35.9, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65 describe animals in their millennial state. But Isaiah 35 or 65 is fantastic because it tells us that physical death is combined. I'm sorry, confined. Get some water here. Physical death is confined to unbelievers in the millennial death, in the millennial state. Sorry, in the millennium, messianic kingdom. Let me say it again. Isaiah 65, 17 through 25 tells us that physical death of human beings is confined uh, to unbelievers who reach the age of 100. Now, that's a great mystery. Why is there any unbelief in the millennium? Why is it or what is it that some choose not to believe? Christ is there on the mountain. You can go see him. In fact, you're supposed to go see him. He's ruling from that mountain. Why is there any unbelief? How much proof and evidence is necessary? There he is. Christ is there. Go to his mountain. Why would you choose death at a hundred? What are you thinking? Isaiah 65, 25. Hopefully you caught it. And dust shall be the serpent's food. That was really interesting. Dust shall be the serpent's food. The serpent eats dust in Genesis 3, 14. So, this has got to be a reference to the curse of Satan. How can it not be that? Then, therefore, that means that the uh, millennial imprisonment of Satan, Revelation 21 through 3, because he's in prison for, oops, I raised it, he's in prison for a thousand years, corresponding to the millennium. And that precedes the fifth stage of the first resurrection. You remember that from last week. No one does. So I want to know how is the hundred year, or I'm sorry, how is the thousand year imprisonment of Satan and the hundred years of death for the unbelievers, how is that eating dust for Satan, eating death? Revelation 24 through 6 got to be involved in this. For those of you who might have missed lecture number 151 and you're thinking, wow, I hope I missed it. The first resurrection, Revelation 20 through 6, I'm sorry, 20 verse 6, has five stages. Remember that? 
each one in its own order, 1 Corinthians 15, 23-23. So the first resurrection has five stages or phases. Christ's resurrection is first. And you got to know this. Keep in mind, i got a bunch of questions this way. Keep in mind his death and resurrection are outside of time. They're outside of time. So when he says he's first, you have to know he's timeless. That's Revelation 13.8. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The word in the Greek is apple. Not apple. Apple. That's the Greek word. And what does it mean? It means from, and that's why uh, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world is how 13.8 Revelation is normally uh, translated. But the word means uh, by, out of, afar off, had left, taken out of, for, because, escape. So you could say the lamb slain, taken out of the foundation of the world, or escaped from the foundation of the world, or afar off, or out of. So once you see that, you have to say, okay, what what does it mean, 13.8? You have to translate it consistent to everything that Christ says about himself. 8.24, 8.12 of John, 8.58 of John, 11.25 of John, 14.6 of John. All of those are I am. I am that I am. That is his Exodus 3.14 declaration. He is before time. Revelation 3.14 and 1.8 He is before the foundations. That's before energy, matter, space, and time. They're the foundation. He is out of. He's afar off from time. He is the I am that I am. Therefore, he is the first one resurrected. Even though you would look in the Bible and go, wait a minute, i got a bunch of people that were resurrected before he was resurrected. No, he's the I am. And that, and, and he's first because his resurrection was before time was even installed. And again, 13.8 Revelation. And that includes the emptying of paradise and the Matthew 27.51-52 through 52 resurrected sign there. Okay, the second stage, or the second part of the first resurrection is the abduction and the taking of the bride. We said that last week. And the third is those who, are res- who resurrect with the two witnesses. That, the resurrection of the two witnesses, all of that that's resurrected there. And do not just confine it to two guys. It can't be. That's not how Christ thinks. When he resurrects, he gets a lot of, a lot of beings that go with it. The fourth stage is the Old Testament saint state, uh, Old Testament saints, including the pre-flood believers. I did have a comment about what about the dinosaurs? I don't want the dinosaurs resurrected. Well, they're going to be returned from their fallen state into the into the glorified state or the millennial state, but probably into the glorified state because they're dead. The millennial state are those animals that are still alive at the end of the tribulation. I think. I should say that. Notice that I, gave, I just gave you a template uh, for the resurrection of the animals. Uh, oh, and by the way, if the dinosaurs are not in their Edenic state, what state are they in? Just saying. How did they get into that state? Genesis 6. You know, what happened? Anyway. But I just gave you a template for the resurrection of all the animals. Psalm 36, 5 through 7. I can't say that one enough. And you're welcome. Okay, i got to really move now, don't I? Mm-hmm. I do. 
I have confidence you can figure out where the animals fit into those four. How, how they fly, where they fit in? Oops, I don't have my five on the board, but I should. I did from last week. You can figure out where those animals come go, and and who's who. I got confidence in you. You can take it from there. There is no first resurrection of mankind or animals from the millennium. Why not? I said that last week because none die except the ones that are unbelieving and they're 100. At 100. And they do get resurrected. They get resurrected at the end of the millennium. Because that's the second resurrection. The first resurrection is for those who are alive as God defines life. The second resurrection is those who are dead as he, he, he describes dead. Not They do not cease to exist. There's no cessation or annihilation. But there's no first resurrection of the millennials. Animals are humans. And I'm going to be really careful here. Overwhelmingly, generally, none die. Uh, and uh-oh, when I say none die, I, the academics are screaming at me now. What do you What do you think there, old Old man who doesn't know anything, they were yelling. You can hear them yell, can't you? What about Ezekiel 45? And that is what Debbie has got brought us to, is Ezekiel 45. Unbeknownst or probably beknownst, I wouldn't be at all surprised. Ezekiel 45 needs to be resolved. And the beginning of the answer is, is Ezekiel 45.22. Ah, I've got to put this up there. Ezekiel 40 through 48 and 45, 22. That is a pile, an absolute pile. And the beginning of the answer to Ezekiel 45 is 45, 22. The prince talks about this prince. He's very mysterious. The prince shall prepare for himself and for all of the people of Israel, it says. He's preparing what? Animal sacrifice. How can I have animal sacrifice in the millennium? Doesn't make any sense to most people. But it does. And the solution, I believe, is figuring out the prince. It's obvious to me that in the least, at the minimum, that the prince represents Christ. He's a type of Christ. That's at the minimum. But I don't need a type of Christ. Why don't I need a type of Christ? Because I have a mountain and who's there? Christ is already there. Why would I have a type of Christ? So I look at that and go, wait a minute, I don't need a type of Christ. Probably isn't a type of Christ in the sense of the normal types. Why would, again, Christ need some representation of himself? If the prince is officiating as the high priest in the sacrificial system, again, why do I have a sacrificial system? That's killing of animals. That's grain, of course, as well. But I have the killing of animals here. The shedding blood of innocent animals. But if the priest, I'm sorry, if the prince is officiating as the high priest and he's also a prince... Then what's that make him? That's right. Well done. Boom. Shackalackalacka. Nailed it. Because that's a commingling. That's a blending of the high priesthood, of the priesthood and the king, the, the, the line of the king and the line of the priest. And that's forbidden. You can't be both. He can't be a prince and a high priest. 
acting, officiating. The only one that can do that is Christ and Melchizedek because Christ and Melchizedek are Christ. Now, people don't like that, as you know, Dave. I should also note that no one, no commentator disputes that God himself is on the throne here, that Christ is here. Nobody says he's not there. Nobody says, you know, he's hiding and the priest is doing stuff. Nobody says that. Christ is there. Physically present. Jesus Christ, who is life, is there. He's there. And, and there is the temple, the house of God, on the mountain. And we're supposed to have animal sacrifice here. How can a sacrifice even be performed? He's life. He's life itself. There is no death with Christ in the mist. And he's in the mist. Lazarus, wonderful statement by Martha. We know that Lazarus would not be dead if he were here. Because nobody dies around you. Two thieves can't die till Christ dies. Now they can die. So there he is. So it's a very difficult question that Debbie has started us on. And I wrote this. No time today to delve into this issue. But obviously a blood sacrifice has no application as to the atonement for sin in the millennium. So what's he doing? Has no sin connection at all. I now start getting a bunch of questions. Well, the animals of the sacrificial systems, both the, the Mosaic sacrificial system and the Ezekielan, try to say that really fast, be resurrected? Of course they will. Christ would would Christ Jesus Christ forsake the animals who have who who shed innocent blood? Their shed blood is a picture of his shed blood. Would he not resurrect them? Psalm thirty five five through seven, thirty six five through seven. Sorry. So of course they're going to be resurrected. When? How do they even die? Now Arnold Fruchtenbaum again. I should say this. There's no consensus. There's no unanimity here. There's none. Everybody fights over this. Arnold, I believe, is correct. Mr. Dr. Fruchtenbaum, he says this is a memorial system, much like communion is a memorial system. And so I agree with that. But there's still a lot of questions. Okay, I was just going to stop. But I can't really stop here. Because Ezekiel 40 through 48, of all the Old Testament, these nine chapters require the most study. You're going to study the, the biggest pile. This is it, in my opinion. The information given here is mind-numbing. Wonderful men and women have taken on the task of solving Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. Clarence Larkin diagrammed out the entire book of Ezekiel that forgot to disconnect the train, didn't he? Okay. He diagrammed the, the entire book of Ezekiel. Arnold Fruchtenbaum being another, as I mentioned earlier, just tore, tore into Ezekiel. I gotta wait for the train to stop, don't I? Okay. We were in a hurry today, folks. Can you tell? Yes, ma'am. You have a question? You have ten minutes. Oh, I have that much time? Anyway, there, there's a great mystery here. And I've yet to find anybody that solved all of the problems. Uh, Debbie M again started all of this. It's not my fault. <laughs> Isaiah and Ezekiel, those are tough books. And you have to study them side by side because they do this. They culminate at Revelation 19 through Revelation 22. That's where they end. So again, that's the 
That is the judgment of the Gentile nations. That is the 75-day interval. That's the <laughs> millennial kingdom that is announced. That's the imprisonment of Satan. And then we end up with the new Jerusalem uh, and uh, the restoration of all things in the eighth day. That's where Isaiah and Ezekiel end up. Again, Matthew 12 and 13 is also intrinsically involved here. That is where the Jews, the Jewish nation, rejects Christ. And I am tying that to Ezekiel 40 through 48. I'll give you a few examples before everyone listening now is in a complete comatose sleep. I mean, completely gone, totally out cold, which is a wonderful thing I provide for people who need the rest. The prince, this prince person, is mentioned 12 times in uh, chapters 45 and 46. 12 times he's mentioned. That's probably an accident. Yeah. Not a problem. Yeah. Just, just throw that aside. It's common, though, to find commentators divide these 12 mentions of the prince into 5 and 7. There's 5 here and there's 7 here. Or 7 and 5, usually. The number 12, of course, signifies perfection in governance or rule. Oh, they will always say the same thing. The prince is not Christ. They are convinced of it. It's not. It's not Christ. Forget it. What are you thinking? He's a representation. He's somebody else. There's two. There's Christ and there's this prince guy. Maybe it's David. That's what they'll say. Okay? He's mentioned 12 times. 5 and 7. If I, if I go with their 5 and 7, as you know, the 12 signifies perfection in governance of rule. So, is the prince able to produce perfection of governance and rule if he is just another man? I don't care if he's resurrected David. Can he do it? And of course, seven is God's number. It's absolute perfection. Five is divine grace. The prince gives a gift of inheritance uh, Ezekiel 46, 16 through 18. A gift of his, he gives a gift of inheritance. Who is the one who gives the gift of inheritance? Just asking for a friend if I had one. So far, you might conclude that the prince is Christ. You might think, wait a minute. He might be Christ. We should look at that. And perhaps you've screamed out Isaiah 9, 6, which you should about the prince. The son is given to us. Proverbs 34. His name will be called what? Wonderful, I'm stopping, wonderful, comma, counselor. So you've got two names so far. Note the comma, just put a comma between wonderful and counselor, if you can, if you could do that in your Bible. He's wonderful, that's his name. He's counselor, that's his name. He's almighty God, that's his name. He's eternal father, and he's prince of what? Peace. Peace. Is there any possibility that Ezekiel knew anything about Isaiah 9-6? Or is there any possibility that the Holy Spirit, when he wrote through Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 48, knew about Isaiah 9-6? It's a possibility. Would you grant that? I hope so. Most think Prince of Peace refers to bringing peace to mankind. No more wars. Blah, 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 blah. And I'll say that's a segment. I won't argue with that. But Romans 5, 1, John 10, 27 through 28, 1 Timothy 3, 16. 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Philippians 4, 6 through 7 tells us there's a greater meaning to Prince of Peace. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says the title is incomprehensible. It's a peace beyond our understanding. You cannot figure it out. It cannot be understood. Christ is accomplishing peace. Here, he's the Prince of Peace. He's also the King. Oh, look, he's Melchizedek. Okay, he's both. God, he's doing both simultaneously because he can. He's the only one that can. I know, so Melchizedek is definitely here in my view, but a lot of people argue with that, and I, and I always win, so I, you know, I don't mind it. That's a joke. I can't wait for them to call me. You don't always win. Well, <laughs> anyway. <coughs> Excuse me. I haven't got into this. Uh, 40 through 48 before, or 45 and 46 of Ezekiel. Christ is accomplishing peace within the triune Godhood. There's a greater meaning to Prince and Peace, Prince of Peace. Inside the greater Godhood, I have, inside the Elohim, the us of Genesis 1.26 and 3.22, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Elohim. The, this peace that he's accomplishing is, is given to us at Gethsemane at Matthew 26, 39 through 46. It's the cup. It's Genesis 15, 8 through uh, 18. The burning lamp and the smoking furnace passing through the heifer, the female goat, the ram, the turtle, dove, and the pigeon. That's the blood coverings of Genesis 3, 21. That's the peace that has to be established inside the Godhead. That's why it's beyond our comprehension. We can't figure out what's going on here. The Godhead is dealing with Mercy and holiness, or mercy and judgment, accountability for sin. That's what's happening. And the only solution is the shed blood of animals. No, the shed blood of Christ, of whom the animals portray. So they're in a fantastic position. There's no better position than to be a type of Christ. The central question then of Ezekiel 40 through 48 becomes, is the prince the prince? Does that make sense? If yes, if you answer yes, what is he doing? What is he teaching Israel in the millennium? Why is he doing this? Why does Israel need the Ezekiel sacrificial system? Not the Mosaic. Don't confuse. It's the Ezekielian. So how does the Ezekielian differ from the Mosaic? I'm saying there's differences. I'm also trying to give you a hint as to what I believe with regard to the prince. In other words, what causes this? Why are the animals involved? Uh, this is a Genesis 3.21 situation. This is a covering of, of Israel in the thousand years. Just like the Adam and Eve were covered. And, and so I'm asking, is this Genesis 3.21 for Israel? I'll get in one more piece of evidence, a clue to my position on Ezekiel 40 uh, through 48. It says here to read it. Why did I do that? I don't have time. I'm going to have to make time. Okay. 9 through 10, I said. Oh, yeah, I hear this fantastic. But when the people of the land come before the Lord on the appointed feast days, whoever enters by way of the north gate to worship shall go out by way of the south gate. And whoever enters by way of the south gate shall go out by way of the north gate. He, 
the prince, shall not return by the way of the gate through which he came. He won't come, he won't believe by the same way he came, but shall go out through the opposite gate. The prince shall then be in their midst. Oh, how about that? So he can't go back the way he came and he ends up in their midst. Isn't that interesting? The prince shall not return by the gate through which he came, but shall go out through the opposite gate. The prince shall then be in their midst. I will keep repeating that until it all soaks in. And immediately, where are you now? That's right. You're finally back at 1 Kings 13. Because I have the unnamed prophet, right? Don't eat any bread, don't drink any water, and don't go back the way you came. <coughs> there he is, 13, 9 through 10, the unnamed prophet, the third prohibition. He must not return by the same way he came. Ezekiel 46, 9 through 10 explains that. So that's why I've been holding on to 1 Kings 13 all this time, which means I have to hold on to 2 Kings 23. How does he do it, you're asking? It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> it's also very boring. But that's okay. Why the death of the unnamed prophet occurred is explained in Ezekiel 46, 9 through 10. The unnamed prophet is what? He's, he's, he's killed and he's put in the middle of the road and he ultimately he's, he's buried with the old prophet. His, the old prophet said, this is a salvation situation. I'm going to make sure my body is next to his body so I resurrect. He's a picture of Christ. As you know, Elisha, his body was, was a picture of resurrection as well. You touch his body, you resurrect. So all of those pieces are right here in Ezekiel 46, 9 through 10. And it explains it in Ezekiel. Why is the tree of life in the mist? Genesis 2, 9. Why, this, the prince is in the mist. What else is in the mist, right? Why is the firmament in the mist of the waters? Genesis 2, 9. Why is the tree of death? Genesis 3, 3. In the mist. Exodus 17, 7. Is God in the mist or not? Is he among us or not? God in the mist at the garden, 3, 8. The sacrifices of Genesis 3, 15, 10 are in the mist. Uh, there's 50 in the mist of Sodom, Genesis 18, 26. Revelation 14, 6. Revelation 19, 17. The birds that fly in the mist of heaven come down to the earth. They're in heaven. How'd they get there? They come down to the earth and what do they do? They're feeding on the carcasses of those killed in the battle of Armageddon. Revelation 22.2 The tree of life is in the midst of the pure river of the water of life. Christ, of course, stood in the midst and, and said, Peace that cannot be understood, be with you. Cannot be understood. He said that. He's in the midst of the apostles in the room. He says, Peace that cannot be understood, be with you. I added a little bit to that. You're right, I changed it slightly. John 20:19. I might attempt to combine 20:19 of John with Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and 1 Timothy 3:16. You can't understand the, the Christ becoming man. It's, it's incomprehensible. God adds humanity. Jesus is the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Revelation 2:1, Revelation 1:13. Christ is in the midst of Israel. Joel 2:27. Christ set the child in the midst with him. Matthew 18:2. He's standing there in the midst, and he brings the child into the midst with him. But being in the midst with Christ is a good thing. Make him stop. I know I can hear people screaming. Make him stop. 
Hopefully you've got a, posi- a glimpse of my position on Ezekiel 40-48. In those chapters, 40, verse chapter 40, chapter 40 through chapter 48. Hopefully you figured out what I think about the prince. Prince is in the midst. Prince can't go in the way he came. Can't leave the king. You know, he, 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 can't, he can't return the, the way he came. 858. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. John 8.59 Then they took up stones to throw at them. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple by going through the midst the midst of them and so passed by. How did he do that? He walked through them as if they weren't there. Their bodies weren't there. How do you do that? I'll ask Sabine Hassenfelder when I get a chance if she'll talk to me. And she's wrong about Kirk dying because Kirk isn't the body. Kirk is the mind, the soul, the spirit of God. And as soon as the physics community outside of Max Planck figures that out, we'll be fine. I should say this to Sabine. Uh, Heisenberg says there's an uncertainty. We can't know where the particles of anything are at any given time. That is the Heisenberg doctrine, if you will. The uncertainty principle. So there's no possibility a machine could find all the particles of Captain Kirk. Not only can it not find his spirit because it's a machine and it's physical and it cannot interact with a non-physical, but Heisenberg, Werner Heisenberg says you can never even find the particle because we don't know where they are. So somehow... The teleporter violates Heisenberg. Or keeps everything together. And it can't do it. So what's the problem? She said something that we don't know something. Physics doesn't know something. She's right about that. They don't know. They don't believe there's a soul. How could they not? Anyway.